Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again to you. It's good to see you this morning on this rainy Sunday morning. We needed the rain. I know it's, it's kind of hard to look out at a glimpse uh, morning with rain, but it's a good reminder of, of uh, what we need. And um, I was thinking about the green I was wearing this morning and all the plants that are going to grow in my backyard, and that got me joyful this morning. <laughs> well, good morning again. I'm Father Morgan Reed. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. And this morning, as you may have found out, we started CGS, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. Um, Ashley has done just really an excellent job this week, uh, putting a lot of extra hours and time into making sure that that happens this morning and that it is joyful and formative for your kids. I'm so grateful um, for her work and others who have really stepped up to like build this program, something that we get to do as a community. It gets the adults involved in the formation of the children here, and by doing that, it's also formative for us. Um, so I'm really grateful this morning that we get to kick that off this morning after so long of prepping for it. Let me pray for us together as we dig into God's Word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our God, we long to love you above all things and in all things. Help us to see and know when we have turned away from you, when we've been guilty of sin, when we've treated with contempt your gift of grace and have rejected your call. We're deeply sorry for all actions and thoughts by which we've offended you, harmed others, or shunned the growth as your children. With Peter, let us weep bitterly that we've denied you, and with Mary Magdalene, let us hear your gracious words. Your sin is forgiven. And then lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Amen. Well, this morning we are in Exodus chapter 32. You've got Bibles in front of you if you want to open up to that passage. Um, And in Exodus 32, we are entering into a collective anxiety on the part of Israel. It's a collective anxiety that leads them to a moment of desperation because of the threat of losing Moses. And, and not just someone that they care about. We can see from the text they probably don't care that much about him personally. But what they do care about is their connection to God. And God has set up Moses as their one connection to him. And so the threat is real. Anxiety abounds um, because this God who brought them out of Egypt is that there's a threat of disconnection from him. And because of their uh, desperation, what they do is they actually create a new medium, a new way of trying to communicate with God, to connect with God. And the result of that um, is that they threaten to undo all the things that God has promised from Abraham on. God has been working for a long time, several hundred years, to bring this people uh, out of Egypt. And um, well, the plan, they weren't in Egypt in Abraham's time, but they would go into Egypt, and this plan existed even back then. Um, if it weren't for the intercession of Moses in this chapter, the people would have been destroyed. And what we learn from this text is that in worship, what we're supposed to do is search for the mercy of God. 
Because searching for God's mercy, what it does is it keeps us from bondage to false gods. It keeps us from bondage to narratives that otherwise might compete for our affections that aren't worthy of God himself. So, we get to this passage where Moses is delayed from coming down from the mountain. He's communing with God. The other people are in the valley. They're waiting. And Moses delays. And what they do is they try and forge a new connection with God. But in their eyes, you can see in the text when you read it, it says gods. And so, um, you know, already you have this false picture of how many gods there are. And, and what they... Um, they did not build what God had actually revealed to them through Moses. They, they used symbols that felt common, that felt familiar to them from the cultures around them. And they tried, based on their familiarity and knowledge, to forge uh, a connection with God, a new connection with God, as they saw fit. It was on their terms. So there are many narratives, there are many idols that we adopt from culture um, and they change, even from culture to culture, from generation to generation. And I was thinking about one of the narratives that comes from culture currently is a, is a predominant narrative about self-actualization. Um, we call it salvation by self-actualization. And I think um, somebody is, <clears throat> one is deeply entrenched uh, in that cultural narrative. When we think about how we're entrenched in that, here's the implications of it. Uh, we think that by becoming our true selves, which is self-actualization, we will achieve salvation. Give it a generation or two, and that narrative might change. But for now, it's a predominant narrative in our culture. Um, the, the, idea, the idea is that real freedom and happiness are found when you and I can really and fully express ourselves. That's what self-actualization is. In other words, self-expression, self-actualization is the road to ultimate happiness. And I think this passage, Exodus 32, um, and I would even say our liturgy, calls us to something more. Um, there's a really great article that came out in 2018 in the Notre Dame University of Notre Dame Church Life Journal. And it's called Being Liturgical. And he's writing from a Catholic perspective, and it still applies to us as well. He says, Christian existence is thus a liturgical phenomenon, where rather than actualize the self, the Christian learns to give the self away in love. The liturgical self is formed through the act of oblation, rather than remaining trapped in inward speculation about the possibilities of improvement. And he mentions then that our liturgical formation is never actually complete. Because we can never really fully attune ourselves to the love of God. That's a constant word. So we turn to the Psalms each week, over and over again, because we never adequately desire um, God or confess God's majesty fully, uh, or fully comprehend his salvation. We, we celebrate feasts and fasts constantly, um, over and over again, because there's always more of the mystery of God's divine love to explore and adore in Christ and in the saints. We partake of spiritual food and drink week in and week out. Um, and pretty soon we'll have midweek Eucharists as well. Uh, because, he says, we are likely to turn God into an idol of our own economy of scarcity rather than perceiving the Eucharist mystery, a gift that surpasses all gifts. So in this case, then, the, um, the liturgical imagination of the church provides a life 
in which we move uh, from self-actualization towards self-gift. The tabernacle, um, both constructing it and approaching it for worship, were actually the acts of revealed liturgical formation. This is what God prescribed. And so what we have is this narrative is sandwiched in between tabernacle narratives. Um, The people would come to know who they were and what they were made for as they grew deeper in worship in the way that God prescribed, in this case, building the tabernacle and using it for the connection with, with God. But the people moved away from it, and what they did is they created a God in the image of the nations around them, something that felt really familiar and comfortable. And I think we ultimately um, also run the risk of creating narratives and idols out of things that are familiar um, without the liturgical formation uh, that began in God's revelation to us in the scriptures and that has been continued through his church. We run the same risk. Liturgical formation, in other words, and if you've been in the confirmation class or will be in the confirmation class, we're going to talk a lot about liturgical formation and what that means. Um, Liturgical formation is really how we approach God in worship, and then that informs who we are and why we're made. So searching out the mystery of God and the mercy of God, rather than this endless process of self-improvement, becomes the quest that keeps us from bondage to the false gods that we would otherwise create, and it keeps us from bondage to the narratives that compete for our affections. We didn't read verses 2 through 6 this morning, but if we were to read them, you would see Aaron took the rings of gold from everybody, uh, and, and the jewelry, and the people gave them to him, and he used an engraving tool to fashion those things into a calf. They built an altar for the gods that they just created, And they rose up early the next morning to sacrifice to those gods on the altar that they just built. Um, And I think the mention of gold here is pretty significant. When you read the book of Exodus, gold is mentioned over a hundred times. It's probably more than most of the Old Testament books, if not the paramount uh, mention. And, And so this connection to jewelry is important. Because when God mentions gold jewelry in the book of Exodus... Um, it often refers to what the Israelites took from the Egyptians when they left Egypt. And then in Exodus twenty twenty three, it actually specifically prohibits them from making gods of gold. He uses the phrase gods of gold. Don't make gods of gold. And then finally, gold is supposed to be used in the construction of the tabernacle. So I, I don't imagine them probably be, being out there in the wilderness mining and panning for gold. I imagine that a lot of these symbols that came from Egypt were meant to be used in the construction of the tabernacle. And so what this means is that when um, Israel left Egypt, God had provided these symbols of deliverance that would then be offered as the means of liturgical formation as they built the tabernacle. And instead what they did is they used those symbols to try and make God's uh, um, as something more familiar to them and something more relatable What they did is they perverted their faith in Yahweh that had been revealed to them through Moses by fashioning God into images of creation. And so the people got impatient. And and it's easy to see why they would want to spend um, resources to make God more comfortable and safe. I find it, you know, it can be really, it can be a lot easier to craft a God that we can relate to and that we can understand um, rather than living with the discomfort of mystery 
And when God says these things are ultimately good for you and we don't understand, it's easy to craft a God that we can understand. Um, And so here's the thing, though, that God might be mysterious, but he's also very present. And that's something they forgot. The tabernacle communicated mystery about a final destination. They didn't know where they were going to end up. I mean, generally, sure, but not exactly where. Uh, But it also communicated the presence of God as they went and as they wandered in uncertainty. So the tabernacle communicated something really important about the nature of God. He might be mysterious, but he's also present. And I find that image really comforting when I think of church planting. Um, And there's a lot about tabernacling that resonates. I remember back, way, 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 way back in August of 2020, like one of the first pictures I threw on our Instagram account as the church was this picture of the altar set up in my living room to practice setting it up with the, the hashtag tabernacling. And so it's been kind of this constant theme from the very beginning of church planting. Um, there are many things that I don't understand about God um, or about how he's leading us. But one thing that I know from tabernacling is that God is present in our midst and that he's active and involved. And, and so the church is here to make disciples through baptism, through teaching the commandments of the Lord. Right? You can think back to the Great Commission. Our church began online. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember that first meeting. And then we started a few months later meeting in person for prayer meetings once a month. And then we finally met for the Eucharist at Lake Akatink. And so, you know, uh, Father Ryan wasn't uh, there at the first one, but I was out there uh, in in all the vestments as people were running and jogging and biking by and stopping at the bathroom going, what what are you guys doing out here, you know, up at the top of the hill at Lake Akatink. And then we moved to Green Spring Gardens, um, and we still met monthly at that point. So I'm letting you, if you didn't come in in those early stages, this is kind of our journey. Our community was being formed in worship, and, and people were offering their gifts to the Lord together. And, and we met then, after we were doing this once a month thing, we started meeting weekly to practice. What's it like to meet weekly? And so we would meet in our small backyard with a canopy over the top, and we would do morning prayer together. Um, We did that for two months as we learned, again, that muscle of meeting weekly because it was still the pandemic. And then we went back to Green Spring Gardens for several months, and we started celebrating the Eucharist weekly, finally, at that point. Um, And we, we started having nursery for the kids. And we would, after the service, eat lunch together after the service while the kids played on the playground or got dirty in the garden. It was wonderful. Um, the Holy Spirit has been with us in, in those moments where you go, oh, yeah, no, this is definitely tabernacling. Uh, we, we should not kid ourselves and think that we've ever stopped tabernacling. Those moments, God was so present uh, and has been present. And so as we, as we pray... God continues to provide for the life of his church. People's lives are being changed. God says, you know, lift up, and then we move on, and then we set down the tabernacle in the next place. And um, so we've been here since last October, and um, as I mentioned a long time ago, uh, we were, we've been looking for a place really since June for what's next. And this has been a really good place to be formed, sort of an incubation space to have constancy every week and start building out some of the programs that God laid on our hearts to do. Disciples are being made in this church um, because God has provided us a temporary shelter here. 
And as, as God made it clear a few months ago that we were start to, starting to look for a new space, we started praying, got together a little team, and started thinking about, you know, what, what do we need to do to move somewhere else by next January? What do we need in the next space to form this church? And so I am so delighted to report um, that this week that finally became clear, and we are signed, sealed, delivered, ready to go. We are going to be just two miles down the road in January. We're going to go meet at Prince of Peace Lutheran uh, church and school. Uh, they've given us space. And um, can I just tell you, the playgrounds are so cool. I mean, that was high on my priority list. It's going to be great. We've been looking for school spaces for a, for a while. And so we were thinking about all the options of what that might mean in the school as we need a place to grow. Um, you know, and, and what I, one of the things I like about this, the main entrance is also handicap accessible. Um, there, there's this beautiful multi-purpose room where we can fit at least 80 people. And, um, and when we do set up and tear down together, we can keep everything on site so we didn't need to buy a van. Uh, there are amazing classrooms for the kids. And there's a really cool youth room for the students, which also has a kitchen where we can have a lot of our hospitality items set up after the service, which is wonderful. Um, and again, the playgrounds are really great. And there's multiple of them. And they're gated, which is great. And so we're going to be saving a lot of money by being there, too, which is another thing that I was uh, I didn't really have any hopes for, but I was praying that maybe God would somehow do this. And while we're there... Um, because we're saving money, we can start to think long term. You know, is there a more permanent space we can look at down the road as we grow? And this next space is going to allow us to do that. So when we get to Prince of Peace Lutheran, and you, know, you can look it up on Google Maps, it really is just two miles down Old Keen Mill. We're going to be moving our worship slot to 11 a.m. And I know for many of you that is a welcome change. Um, as, as you know, we were getting here this morning going, I don't know if I can get here by 9, it's raining, and... And so that's going to be a welcome change as well. That will provide new opportunities for lunch after the worship service or even coffee before the worship service. There is a Starbucks that is walking distance from that space. Um, you could think about morning Bible studies or other things like that. So the tabernacle, what it does, it reminds us that, that worship actually begins with even thinking about setup um, as, as part of the means of worship. And it's not just showing up, offering, and leaving, that actually all of this is formative. It must have been formative for Israelites to have to set up a giant tent in the wilderness. It's a very earthly thing with very material stuff to, to have to drive tent pegs into the dirt and, and forging curtain rods, hanging curtains, getting our buddies Shmuel, Levi, and Ariel to you know help move all those heavy furnishings and, and, and getting stuff off the carts to put into the tabernacle. The people had to do a lot together, and I imagine that was really formative for them. And so that's one of the things I'm actually excited about, too, that um, I'm not asking you to come at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, we're going to have an 11 a.m. time slot, and so setup is a lot more manageable that way as well. And again, um, having on-site storage is a huge praise because we can keep a lot of it set up there and then just move it into a space. Um, but part of our worship is going to be getting there early, working together to fashion the space to meet the Lord together. That's part of our worship. And the tabernacle is formative because it reminds us of our constant need for God's mercy. And so when you think of the people of Israel, 
in this chapter, one of the other things that comes out very strongly is Israel was desperately in need of God's forgiveness. And when we look at chapters 32 through 34, one of the things they highlight is the intercessory role of Moses. Moses is given this summary of what happened, um, and he's told to go down from the mountain by the Lord. Israel had been so quick to turn from God. And so God tells Moses that his wrath was burning hot and that Israel um, against Israel, and that essentially he wanted to wipe out the nation and just start again with Moses. And, and so that declaration of God's intention is not taken as, um, uh, well, I, it's just fate. Uh, Moses actually takes that as an opportunity to pray and to intercede for the people. Moses tells God how God's reputation is actually going to suffer from the pagan nations. Um, and so he asks God to fulfill the promise that he had made to the patriarchs before. And, and not based on Israel's faithfulness, but based on God's faithfulness to his promises. He asks God to change his mind, what relent means. And the text mysteriously says, God does. And rather than debate what's meant by God changing his mind and relenting, I think what this text is doing is it's establishing a precedent. Uh, Israel needs atonement for her sins. And, and the removal of that sin uh, is what's needed because of the rupture that they created in their relationship with God. And they needed restoration with the God who loves them and who saved them out of Egypt. And so before the priestly system is even established, with a, with a tabernacle already finished, what Moses does is he steps in and he points to the people's need for atonement as a precedent for why the tabernacle is going to exist. Um, in fact, in the last chapter, in response to the whole episode, uh, Moses, sorry, not in the last chapter before this, but in, in the, the final chapter of this episode, he says, uh, Moses says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So he fully understands this. And then speaking to the Lord, what he says is that if the Lord will forgive their sin, uh, will not forgive their sin, rather, then he says, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And so in one way, what he's doing is he actually offers himself on behalf of the people. Understanding that a person needs to be the substitute for other people's sins. And so what Moses couldn't do, and what all the animals in the world could not do, what it points to is what Christ has actually done for us. Even in this early stage in the Exodus period. And one of my favorite um, late Old Testament scholars, a guy named Brevard Childs, he says about this passage, Israel and the church have their existence because God picked up the pieces. There was no golden period of unblemished saintliness. Rather, the people of God are from the outset the forgiven and restored community. There's a covenant and a new covenant because it was maintained from God's side. If there ever was a danger of understanding Sinai as a pact between partners, the rupture of the golden calf made crystal clear that the foundation of the covenant was, above all, divine mercy and forgiveness. And so we don't have this transactional relationship with God. What we have is a relationship with God that's founded on God's mercy and God's forgiveness. 
And if we want to live out faithfully God's will for our lives, we're not going to be perfect. But we are going to be a people who relies on and gets to know and grow deeper in the knowledge of the mercy of the Lord. And that mercy is transformative. To press into it is to unyoke ourselves from all the idols and the sins that would otherwise bind us. So we press into mercy. It's this ongoing work because creating false gods, creating false narratives, um, and inappropriate ways to commune with God are always a besetting sin of the church and of each of us individually. It's always a besetting sin. And so let us hold fast to the mercy of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's search for the mercy of God that keeps us from bondage to false narratives, to false gods that are so common in our culture and that compete for our affections. Let me pray for us. Oh God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.